0: I think the braver leader goes inside out and says, where's my real passion? What got me into this in the first place? What really is my personal mission statement? And how does that link to the mission statement of the organization I lead? How do these things come together? And how do I tell that story in a very compelling way to bring my organization, my own team along, but also my supporters and my partners?
1: This is Mission to Scale a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact. Because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Beretovitz, founder and CEO of Spring Impact. Throughout my career, I've seen motivation as a thread through everything. That thread can help teams thrive and achieve extraordinary things, or be one that unravels and becomes one of the greatest barriers to change happening. Yet we seldom address motivational challenges that everyone, from frontline workers to organisational leaders, face. I couldn't be more thrilled to explore this with today's guest, Sharath Jeevan. Sharath is the executive chairman of Intrinsic Labs and a leading expert on motivation. Sharath started off his career at eBay. He was a social entrepreneur who built a marketplace for philanthropic goods on the site. After leaving his senior role at eBay, he led two non-profit organizations, including STIR Education. STIR is an international NGO that helps reignite the inner drive of teachers, officials and children in education systems. Stir scaled from 12 schools in 2012 to over 35,000 schools across India, Uganda and Indonesia in 2021.
0: And that's what really got me my that, that sort of love and passion about this question of motivation. I'm not a psychologist, I'm an economist by background, but we realized that you know, we were planting lots of seeds in education, whether it was curriculum or assessment or teaching and so on, but the soil wasn't fertile and we had to find a way to ignite that in a drive. and that, made me realise that there was a much broader applicability to what I was learning to many other domains. And Intrinsic Labs works with a whole range of organisations in the social sector, but also beyond, to tackle deep questions around motivation.
1: Your book is called Intrinsic. It's about intrinsic motivation. Could you tell us how intrinsic motivation differs from motivation as we generally know it? Yeah, so
0: so what the literature would define is really two sources of motivation. and um, One is, is intrinsic, as you as you said, The other other is the opposite, extrinsic, or if you like, and think of it like internal and external motivation. What's really clear now after about 30 years of research and very high-quality academic research is that it's a bit like good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Or if you like, it's like going on a car, one powered by electricity and one by diesel. The diesel will get you there. you'll, You'll get from A to B, but you might choke with some of the fumes along the way. The electric journey is much more pleasurable, much more exciting, and you feel much better about the whole thing. In reality, both drivers matter. But the more we can live our lives according to intrinsic motivators and principles, the more likely we will be fulfilled and motivated. But also, ironically, in the longer term, successful, which will make us more motivated and happier as well. And you get onto a virtuous cycle. What I think has happened is we've used extrinsic motivation. To such an extent, it's it's almost uh, demoralized so many of us. And what's ironic, I think, is there's been very lazy thinking in our sector, where we've just borrowed, you know, very much old outdated management thinking and tried to bring that into the social sector and incentives. You know, you look at many of the trends we've seen, paper performance, etc., all these things, it all speaks to this idea that we are inherently lazy, we don't care about what we do, we don't have a passion for our cause. It's only carrots and sticks that will motivate us. And I want to profoundly challenge that assumption because I think more and more we're realizing it's just just not true.
1: You talked about STIR education before where you'd really had the realization that intrinsic motivation was the driver. Was there a particular turning point um, within STIR or somewhere else within your journey where you really saw that coming to the fore?
0: Yeah. So very early on, actually, we started STIR very much as a a sort of grassroots JPAL pal Those who know, the Poverty Action Lab and the Nobel Prize winner, uh, you know, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo. The idea was to find really cool grassroots practices from teachers and test them and then scale them. But we did this search initially in the slums of Delhi. This was about ten years ago, and found by accident by searching for these ideas. We we got the ideas. That was fine. But by accident, we were rekindling the motivation of teachers and the love of teaching. And it was very much it wasn't designed, but it just happened. And I think there was that profound realization there was a, a baby in the bathwater problem, right? We'd, we'd confuse the baby with the bathwater. And, and the baby really was the motivational impact we were having. And, you know, we have these defining moments in our careers where you think, God, this is really messy now. This is not what I set out to do. I'm not a psychologist. How the hell do you measure motivation? What are my donors going to say? And all of these questions come up. But I think I'd been enough in the set to realize that you can coast along and, I thought, let's grapple with this and let's be honest. And, and I remember going into DFID, who were one of our first funders at the time. And we were lucky to have them quite early on and telling them, look, I think we've got the baby in the bathwater mixed up here. I think we should pivot and really focus on this question of motivation, looking at how we can affect that at scale. And what was reassuring, actually, was no one laughed at that idea. And I think that honesty and, and rawness really helped build belief and credibility. And I think people were very excited to go on the journey as a result. So for me, that was a very profound leadership lesson that being honest with our partners and trying to really talk about the learning you're going through and and tackle these demons early on.
1: Yeah, so there's something about authenticity that breeds the intrinsic motivation in, I guess, yourself and in others. So what do you think in the social sector more broadly of what's not working when it comes to intrinsic motivation?
0: So I think it's very similar to teachers then in the sense that all of us who came into the sector, there are many, I'm always amazed by the level of Expertise, education, dynamism of people in the sector. That's been an absolute pleasure to work in over these last uh, 15 years. I think what has happened, though, is that it's very similar to the systems around us and the culture of the organizations we're in. Rather than actually promoting that intrinsic motivation, increasing it, it in fact detracts from it and undermines it. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently coaching about um, 10, 12 CEOs of, of nonprofit organizations as part of my work with Intrinsic Labs. What's really interesting is that you know, all of them came in with a very, very high degree of intrinsic motivation, a real passion for what they're doing. They still are incredibly passionate and dynamic, but there's that pressure. And I, I, I certainly felt this myself running STIR. You start to build an organization. You've got, you know, in STIR we had about 100 people at one point. You know that you know, you've got to make sure they are you know, paid for and they can pay their, you know, pay their salaries. They've all got dependents. And you start sort of feeding a fundraising machine. And more and more, you start to settle, I think. And rather than do what you think is really right and what you want to do, you do what's basically fundable. And I think that's such a travesty because I think what that means is we kind of get into a cycle of mediocrity where we're not doing what we love as as the leaders of these organizations. Our teams don't resonate, and don't feel with the authentic leaders, you mentioned that word, Mm -hmm. that that we deserve to be. Donors then start sort of thinking of us as commodities, as something people can replace, you know. These guys can do it 5% cheaper. Let's just get them next project. And you create this culture. And in a way, I think the combination of doers and donors doesn't lead to the social impact we need to see in the world. So I think it's a very almost cancerous trend I think we're seeing, and I think we've got to get it out. If not, it's going to get to such a point that many of our most talented people may, may either want to leave the sector or perhaps be in there but sort of coast and settle.
1: In my experience, when you're deep in the weeds with mounting people and financial challenges, rebuilding motivation is a massive challenge. Sharath shares an interesting perspective on how to overcome this.
0: So I think one of the things I've observed in some of the coaching I'm doing with, with Intrinsic Labs now is this: this is the difference between leaders who are outside in and leaders who are inside out. And I think leaders who are inside out actually tend to do better over the longer term. Let me just describe what I mean by that. I think what happens is we go into a sector and say, okay, the outside-in perspective says, okay, what does the funding landscape want? Mm -hmm. If the funding landscape wants more of mental health, we'll do more of mental health. If it wants this particular fad in mental health, it will do more of that. And we start to see ourselves almost as a kind of commodity producer of that output, right? So we're all about showing we can achieve that output at a certain cost level. And that becomes the game we play. Unfortunately, the problem with that is what we end up doing is we all end up doing the same thing. And, you know, it was, it was classic in education. There were in, I worked in industrial India. There were so many organizations who were doing some things that were maybe 5% different from each other. Mm-hmm. What that creates is a culture where donors basically say, well, how do I choose do any of these things? Governments are baffled because how do I know which organization to work with in my education system? And we basically commoditize ourselves, right? We become like cheap commodities that have no... There's almost no difference. No one can see a difference. I think the braver leader goes inside out and says, where's my real passion? What got me into this in the first place? What really is my my personal mission statement? And how does that link to the, the mission statement of the organization I lead? How do these things come together? And how do I tell that story in a very compelling way to bring my organization, my own team along, but also my supporters and my partners? And from that, I'll figure out how to reach out to the external world and how to influence the external world to achieve that change that I and my team believe are critically important. It's a very different way of starting with where you start with, but it starts with that that really using intrinsic motivation as the core of that journey.
1: That makes total sense. So the idea of inside out versus outside in, I guess, you know, there's a risk when you start with yourself inside out of the Hero entrepreneur or arrogance getting in the way and dreamers. You know, I think of these uh, shows, uh, these talent shows on TV, which I think are becoming a bit less popular now. But where people come in with just completely blinded by their own idea of their brilliance, and the rest of the world ends up laughing at them. How do you avoid that? Because I guess there is a balancing act between the internal and the external.
0: No, it's it's a great point, Dan. And I think the way to really make sure that we stay honest to ourselves—that's you know, what you're really saying. Is this idea of a of purpose? And you know, I define purpose as knowing how our work profoundly helps and serves others. If you take that lens on it, it's not about ego, it's about doing what's right for the problem you're trying to solve and falling so deeply in love with the problem that you're almost agnostic about the solution. Mm-hmm. So that's the real paradox of this. I think it's not the kind of you know, sell, sell, sell entrepreneur. I've met many of them. Over the years, I've probably been one of those at various points, to be honest, as well. But that's not helpful for the world either. But we've got to be so committed to that. And you know, I talk a lot about in the book about this idea of a wicked problem, a problem that has no easy technical solution. Yeah, That's what most of us in development are, are focusing on. But if you can find that, that wicked problem, and for me, it was about how do you motivate teachers fundamentally? There's no magic wand that will do that. And still, iterated many times, so probably five iterations of the time I was there, and I'm sure there'll be many more, but you keep getting a better and better mousetrap and a better brand solution, but you're fixed on the problem at hand. And that's your North Star. Yeah. That avoids all the hubris. Because I think when you have that arrogance, and it is a risk, it's when I think people are so wedded to their way of doing things, their solution. They can't see the wood from the trees. They stop listening. They stop getting external feedback. So I think that idea of re-anchoring ourselves around the wicked problem and that core idea of purpose can help us keep honest.
1: No, that's great. And I, you know, a lot of the work we do on scaling impact also talks about falling in love with the problem. So it sounds very familiar. I guess one of the challenges we see is that once you have a solution, it's such a pool. It's so exciting having something that works. And then if you discover that that thing is not quite working at the scale or creating the greater impact that you want to achieve, changing again is really challenging. So I wonder, is there a role? for motivational. How do you motivate yourself when you think you've found something and then you have to change it? So it's the sort of you've finally got to the outside piece and now you have to go in again. I don't know if there's anything that can be done at that point because we see that as a real challenge for teams, you know, who've believe they've got the solution and then have to go back to the problem.
0: So I think look at the parallel with, with our school systems, right? We have kids who are learning, you know, look at the kids who have been affected by the pandemic. They were in a very stable school system they were told that basically, if you get onto this ladder of academic success, life was going to be all sorted. These are the exams you've got to pass and look at the chaos that's happened around the world around this and that need for us to be adaptive. And I think it's the same mentality we've got to have as social entrepreneurs or leaders in the space that, yes, we might have built a good mousetrap, but I think for us thinking a lot about, are we really addressing the problem at the most upstream level? I'm a big fan of Dan Heath and some of his work, and he's talked about this idea of, how do you move more and more upstream what you do? What I find happens, so if I, if I reflect very honestly, and I, I talk about this in the book as well, that the work in education, I'm deeply proud of the contribution we made and, and I made personally, but when I look back, I wish I'd taken on some of the more systemic issues. There's mm-hmm. a lot of the issues around education were really about income inequality. And I think if we could have made that case to governments and address some of those root causes better, many of the education symptoms we were trying to solve would not have been there in the first place. I see. So I think it's not coming in saying you failed. It's saying, look, I've, I've been able to address this problem really well with this solution at this level of the kind of upstream spectrum. But there's probably something I can do that's deeper and more systemic that will maybe even reduce the need to, to solve the problem in the first place. And I think would keep that as a watchful eye of ourselves and saying, are we really attacking the problem in the right level? That just keeps us nimble and keeps us always being more ambitious of where we want to try to focus our efforts and time.
1: That's great, because I think we know systems change is one of the buzzwords at the moment. And I love that idea of different levels of of depth that you saw. As you were scaling Stir and as you see many other organizations, what are the role that motivation plays in scaling and scaling impact?
0: So I think one of the profound, I think you touched on this, one of the profound tensions is really scaling often means letting go, right? I mean, very few of us in the sector have a luxurious point to be able to say, someone will give us hundreds of millions of dollars to scale our own particular organization up. Almost always scale means scaling through others, um, because we're all under tight financial constraints, and the size of the problems we're addressing are almost infinite, right? So you're in that situation where you've got to get other people to basically build your mousetrap. That's the the core of the scaling challenge I, I would describe. Right. The challenge is that you know, when you run your own thing and you're, you're in control of the whole thing, that's a different motivational mindset to one around you know letting someone else do it. And I think one of the ideas in the book I talk about is this idea of guided autonomy. And that might be useful to apply here. So I think as, as leaders in the sector, we tend to have these very black and white views of the world. And we have full autonomy where we're fully in charge, fully running something, 100% control, or you give it to a government often nowadays and expect them, and you almost know, from, you think you know from the beginning it's not going to work because all these issues of quote-unquote fidelity and quality control, and even the language is very negative from the start. There's no wonder these things often fail. But I think what we're learning about autonomy is it's not so black and white. There's, there's a nice gray area in the middle, which allows you to have the best of both worlds, so there's, I think, a really nice space where you can say you can you can almost have your cake and eat it too. You can say you have the chance to scale. But if you really, if you trust your partner, it's government or an NGO or the market, and work with those partners to really explain why these key principles are so core cool to your motivation as a leader and also to why this is important to motivate the people we're trying to serve, whether those are teachers or any other kinds of beneficiaries, there's a powerful way to align our partners around that. What I've seen happen a lot is that we tend to retreat to manuals and processes and you know standard operating procedures, and it becomes this technocratic mess. That you know the partner feels like God, you guys are just micromanaging me. That's very demotivating, right? If you're a government and you're basically being told, look, I don't trust you. That's why I'm going to basically tell you what how every minute detail should be. There's got to be a nice in between here.
1: Brilliant, I love that. So scaling through others, and then of course the others need to be motivated, and this idea of having Sort of black and white command and control leadership versus the gray areas, I think, is really helpful. But also, having been in those leadership positions myself and advised many others, it's really hard when you're dealing with gray areas, particularly when you're sort of trying to manage a team. So, how would you, in your experience, find the gray areas, the ways that unlock scale ultimately, but intrinsic motivation as the road to that?
0: Yeah. So, so I talked about two of the levers of motivation to purpose, this idea of helping and serving others, um, yeah. autonomy, this idea of being, being at the wheel of our lives or our, our jobs and so on and, the, and how those are important. The last lever, which I'll pillar, which I think relates to this is around mastery. And I think what I found really go very well with successful partnerships for scale is when there's a mastery mindset between the two partners. By that, I mean, mastery is all about this idea that you're trying to become the best version of yourself you can be. You're not trying to compete with someone else. You're trying to be, you know, better someone else. You're on this journey of almost continual improvement, and you never get to full mastery. So Roger Federer, you know, has never played the perfect tennis set. He's got close, but he's not there yet. And so that kind of mentality is deeply humbling. And I think if we and the partner, so let's say you're an NGO working with government, if you take on that mastery mindset together and say, look, we don't know how this is going to work. There's a lot of, you know, unknown unknowns to borrow a, a former you know, U.S. leaders' uh, words. <laughs> How do we learn together and keep learning and and being on that journey of discovery and, and searching for the right answers? If you have that kind of humility and mindset and motivation, it's very difficult to go wrong because you're constantly adapting and iterating. And there's a culture of not blaming each other or not saying my approach is better than yours or all this kind of stuff, but you're in it together as well. That can be a very, very strong enabler, I think, of good partnerships for scale.
1: Yeah. As a leader of an organisation, when you're in one of these moments of burnout or sort of frustration, I think a, a lot of what we talked about with intrinsic motivation—a a very broad brushstroke—you know, think about your purpose, things which are, you know, it's work and it's time, it's over a period. When you're in that moment, you're burning out or you're feeling frustrated. Are there things that you can do to realign at that point?
0: So I'm a big believer in, in, I think, about motivation at work, right? I mean, what's scary from data globally is that about 85% of us in every sector are somewhat disengaged or actively disengaged in work around the world. So it's a huge problem. I think, ironically, the social sector is not that much better at it. It should be, but it isn't. So one of the things I think that I talk about in the book is how can we try to reignite our motivation at work and find very practical solutions? And one example is around this idea of job crafting. So, what's tended to happen in the sector? We have these often very cookie cutter job descriptions that are out there. You put them on a HR, you know, portal. People apply, and then you just come. People come straight in and actually just do the job. And what a what a waste of talent, right? Often, what would be great is okay. Clearly, there's some outline of a job that needs to be done for it to be a job in the first place. But so much of it now in the world of modern work can be customized. It go back to the idea of guided autonomy to the strengths and interests of the individual what about a job crafting conversation between the hiring manager and the new recruit coming in? Or if you're in the organization with your I just saying, look, I, I'm enjoying this aspect. I realize why it's important, but I'm finding this part is a big distraction. Is there a way I can perhaps do less of that? Or can I find a tech solution to that, or a database to do that? Can I spend more time on this aspect? Our sector and our jobs are inherently purposeful. They're, they're all about helping and serving others. But we've managed to slice and dice them in such kind of arcane ways that we destroy the inherent motivation in them. But we can piece them back together, that's my very firm belief.
1: Sharath believes that when organisations focus most of their energy on technical skills, it contributes to the motivational malaise. He says that when we do this, the human connections, and what he calls the broader mastery essentials, are often missing.
0: For example, you know, I've talked to many finance teams and run many, of course, where the finance team would often see it as their role to produce good management accounts. Now, that is absolutely critical. Obviously, the whole portion runs on that, that information. But I think you know, a finance manager is saying, look, actually, my, my purpose of work is to help my CEO and, and my leadership team make better decisions. Mm-hmm. If that becomes the personal mission statement, rather than I produce the monthly management accounts it implies a whole set of new behaviors. So it means Mm -hmm. not just sending the report on Excel at the end of the month, but walking down the corridors, talking to each manager, saying, have you understood what this means? You know, Let's talk about what it might mean for how we can improve program performance in this area or be more efficient in that area. It's a fundamentally different, almost job, actually. and, And that will keep people motivated for years to come.
1: Interesting. No, that really rings true for me. And uh, I can think to a number of projects, one in particular in the national health system in the UK, where we went in and started talking to nurses, doctors about how they could create more impact. And we were surprised that at the end of the workshop, which was pretty technical, the feedback that came back was how we sort of reignited their love and remember why they took the job in the first place, which is to change and, you know, shape people's lives. When it comes to conversations with individuals. It sounds like one of your realizations was this: that you've been focusing too much on the sort of technical side and not enough on the intrinsic motivation, the real igniting the reasons why people did their role. Just when you're sitting one-on-one with someone, you have a meeting, you've got your half an hour, 45 minutes to make an impact, what can you do to sort of go that level deeper and um, make sure that you're igniting people's passion?
0: So one one really simple tip, I think, is to ask the person if they can articulate, help them do it, but what is their personal mission statement in in life and in their job? So just to give you an example, my one now in my current iteration in Intrinsic Labs is, you know, I help organizations and individuals to reignite in a drive by writing, coaching, consulting. Can that um, individual government express a simple sentence like that that gets that point? Both, you know, what are they trying to do in terms of what they're trying to help them serve? And also, how will they do that? Is it you know, through what mechanisms? If you get them to articulate that point, what's so hard for companies is they're, they're like you know deer under headlights often. There's so many things going on. It's really hard to remember, as you said, why they started this in the first place. That helps to anchor them. And then you can have a conversation, okay, given that's your personal mission statement, how can I help you? What bits are going well? What, what bits do you need help in? Uh, what bits with other connections, other resources help you in? And it just opens up a really, and give them yours and, and also share back yourself. And look at, okay, these are what, what we're trying to do. Where's the fusion? Is, where's the, the marriage that can really help us both achieve our motivation through this partnership?
1: So motivation runs through everything and regularly anchoring ourselves to why we do what we do can help us maintain our intrinsic motivation. I went on to discuss with Sharath how motivation is important not only at work, but when it comes to our personal lives. Motivation can shape for better or worse our relationships with our partners, children, and friends, and ultimately, how we act as citizens in the world. If you're interested in exploring this fascinating topic more, Sharath's book, Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite our inner drive, is now available at major booksellers And you can find the link in our show notes. That's it from us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. While you're there, I'd appreciate if you could rate and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or a colleague. Thanks so much for joining, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter.